Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 121, Traveling 19th Century Bulgaria. First, as always, I want to thank our newest patrons. We've got John Donahue, Brandon Rista, and Mir Chovalchev. And to those three and a few other people, I just want to thank everyone for reaching out. Recently, quite a few people have had some good suggestions, uh, some clarifications about the Unia Church, which I'm just not that good with church history. That stuff is just very confusing and kind of, uh, ugh, I, I just get lost in it. So I appreciate all that. And to all the people, quite a few have been reaching out about kind of Americans with uh, Bulgarian roots and about the immigration histories of their families. Really interesting stuff. So yeah, if people have good stories, suggestions, anything like that, you can always reach out. I love hearing from you. So thank you all. Now, today, as you might have noticed from the title, we're doing things a little bit differently. We're going to take a quick break from the regular narrative to cover a special topic. Now, I want to talk about some general history events of the past few decades based on a book I've been reading that was just released called this Unknown Land, How Geographers, Pharmacists, Novelists, Plant Hunters, War Correspondents, Engineers, Medical Men, and Tourists Discovered and Experienced 19th Century Bulgaria by the German historian Marco Scholler. It is packed with details. Uh, I'm just over halfway through it right now, but based on the notes and everything I've taken from what I've read so far, I've been able to put together a kind of whole episode on these topics. And as I finish it up, uh, I'll kind of see how I can incorporate the other things I learn into this and other episodes. Now, this episode is going to roughly cover kind of tourism and transportation from the 1830s up to the 1860s. I'll occasionally be quoting the book, but basically all the facts in this section are from that book. And of course, it should go without saying a huge Thank you to Professor Scholler. I haven't met him or communicated with him, but maybe he'll hear this. Uh, his book has been really fascinating, and I definitely encourage you all to check it out. Uh, I will try to remember to put a link to it in the description here. Uh, you know, I don't get any money or kickbacks from that or something. Just want to support people who are doing interesting contemporary history about Bulgaria, particularly in the English language, because that is so rare. So, to begin, tourism in Europe began in its earliest forms in the 17th century. But it only really became a factor in Bulgaria in the 19th century when many of the people who were just listed in that long book title began exploring Bulgarian lands. Before the 1830s, most travelers to Bulgaria and to the Ottoman Balkans in general came through Wallachia and crossed into the Ottoman Empire via the Danube at the now Romanian town of Giorgiu. This is directly across from Ruse. Nowadays, you can cross it at what's called the Friendship Bridge. So today, the way most people would enter Bulgaria, besides flights, obviously, is the big highway, which leads from, you know, Istanbul to Sofia to Belgrade to, you know, Budapest, Vienna, you know, that, that route. But the question then is, wh why did people tend to come across Wallachia and across the Danube and not that way? Well, the book doesn't delve into this specifically, but my speculation is that travelers wished to remain in the Austrian Empire, which probably had a much better transportation network, as long as possible. And it was quicker to simply enter Wallachia from Transylvania rather than head south and cross Serbia. 
I did find some mentions that getting to Bulgaria via Serbia meant about 10 rather arduous days on horseback over very bad roads. And I imagine if you could get to Brasov, which is kind of, again, in Romania today, if you imagine uh, the the, um, Carpathian Mountains make kind of just a big right angle, it's where the two meet uh, in the middle of today's Romania. But then in the Austrian Empire, getting from there to the Danube is not that far, would have been much faster than those 10 days over Serbia. Um, If you look at Google Maps, that distance, Brasov to Giorgiu, is about 45 hours by foot. So if you can imagine you're traveling by horse eight hours a day, I roughly calculated that might take you five days, maybe a bit longer, but quite a bit less than that overland route via Serbia. But that all changed when steamboat lines developed on the Danube, going from Vienna and Budapest all the way down to, well, eventually to Constantinople. At that point, Vidin became the most common entry point uh, for Bulgaria over Ruse, and that was suddenly where most people encountered Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire as a whole for the first time. Scholler writes, quote, The steamboat service, as established during the 1830s, changed everything and was to usher in the birth of modern tourism on the Danube. Apart from offering a regular service and being specially adjusted for passenger transport, the slow steamers did not depend on the wind, making them more reliable as to travel times, and were less threatened by the notorious shoals and sandbanks of the lower Danube. Now, the first of these Danubian steamers to make it down to Bulgaria was called Argo, and that was in 1834. By 1838, there were 13 steamers operating between Linz, Austria, and the Danube Delta. For reference, the trip from Vienna to Constantinople at that time took about 12 to 14 days, with departures every two weeks except in winter. But by the early 1840s, they were running about every 10 to 11 days, so a bit more often. And, to quote Scholler again, the number of steamboat travelers on the lower Danube soared from 332 in 1835 to over 2,600 in 1839, but then stalled out around 2,200 in 1840 to 41, end quote. So, by the 1840s, a few thousand people a year are visiting Bulgaria in this way, and it was actually relatively straightforward to visit Bulgaria as a tourist or, you know, naturalist, botanist, whatever your reason for coming was. As we'll discuss in a moment, you had to buy a kind of passport on arrival, but it wasn't very expensive. I don't know how much the ferry tickets were, and certainly everyday people were not making this journey. It wasn't a, you know, a mass thing, as we can see from those numbers. But still, in just a few days, relatively comfortable. You know, people had mixed opinions about the comfort of these steamships, but they were definitely more comfortable than going by horse. In just a few days, you could be in Vidin, leaving from Vienna. However, the outbreak of the Crimean War really brought this traffic to a very rapid halt. Now, it did then begin to pick up again in the 1860s. But even though the industry was starting to pick up, overall, the market for passengers and cargo was suffering. And this was actually because of cargo. Now, overall, more cargo than ever was moving on the Danube. But this was being done more and more by local barges instead of these kind of internationally run steamships. And this caused really big delays and backups at the ports, because now all of a sudden there were all these, you know, non-steam-powered, very slow uh, cargo ships that had to be unloaded. And so suddenly you were in a situation where sometimes a ship would have to wait all day to unload passengers, which of course you can imagine caused major problems for the line as a whole. 
Scholler's book has reports of passengers waiting, again, the better part of an entire day just to unload. As a result, steamboat lines reduced the stops along the way, largely to just Wieden and Ruse. In 1863, traveler Sigismund Wallace wrote about the Bulgarian Danube town of Tutrakan, which had been a stop but wasn't really very often anymore. He wrote, quote, How strange, then, that this townlet has no traffic, and no commerce to speak of as well. The steamboats called on here many times, but there was never a single resident who desired to come aboard. End quote. So, apparently these steamboats were a marvel in the early years, drawing huge crowds every time they came, but by now the allure had worn off, and there just wasn't enough of an economic or other incentive to get people to use them. So, that's a bit kind of what was happening at this time with steamboats. But again, what happened when travelers actually arrived in Bulgaria? What did they think of it? What did they encounter? What was their experience like? Let's start with Vidin. Now, we can say that travelers were not very kind to the city. It was frequently decried as dirty, lazy, ugly, oriental, or at best barely commented on at all. A few people did have kind of romantic opinions of it. They'd see the minarets in the distance and things, and oh, we're in the Orient, we're in the East, all these kinds of things. But yeah, most Westerners who came to Vidin did not particularly like it. Now, opinions of Ruse were more varied, with some writing that it was delightful and others decrying it as squalid. That same variety can be found really in most Bulgarian towns along the Danube, although overall Ruse and Svistov were considered to be the more kind of European of those Danubian towns and therefore had you know more positive opinions from the Europeans. Now, often the impression that writers would have of these towns would really match their political opinions. And this would be, you know, do they consider the Ottoman Empire and its Bulgarian subjects all kind of backward oriental savages or something like this? Do they consider the Ottoman Empire as kind of moving towards westernization and relatively positive and it's improving? Or do they see the Ottomans as oppressive and see the Bulgarians and other Christian subjects as sympathetic? You know, all those things would essentially play very heavily into how they viewed everything from the way the streets were laid out to uh, you know, the the way people acted, the way the customer service was, all these kinds of things. Now, this relates to a kind of evolving sense of the Ottoman Empire and the you know, Orient that it represented, which we've discussed a bit previously. Remember, over the course of the 19th century, the romantic interest in the Orient waned and was gradually replaced by a view of the Orient as kind of more backwards. To quote Scholler again, quote, In 1854, a journalist writing from Varna denounced the Turks as Asiatic barbarians. For Philhellenic writers, the use of Asiatic also offered the chance to put the Slavic nations on the Balkans, the Bulgarians in particular, in the Asiatic mold, either by picturing them as Ottoman subjects, who by long habit had become the likes of their Asian masters, or by underlying their ancient Turkic origins. During the following decades, Asiatic came to be employed ever more frequently with the connotations outlined before. End quote. So again, you know, as we've talked about, we've seen, you know, sometimes in Western newspapers, the Bulgarians are portrayed very sympathetically and as, oh, they're, they're, they're fellow Christians, they're being oppressed, da, da, da. But as we've kind of seen here, other times it's like, oh, they're no better than the Turks and, and they're not treated very nicely. And again, as we've discussed, this is going to be very important because Western public opinion is becoming ever more powerful and ever more 
relevant and important for Bulgarians who desire independence. Now, in 1863, the Austrian columnist, who I mentioned before, Sigismund Wallace, described Vidin particularly as, quote, entirely Turkish to wit. The narrow streets, badly paved and dirty, with open vaults and artisan shops beside the Turkish coffee houses, small and utterly unclean. The town offers, therefore, nothing of the least appeal to the stranger. End quote. So, yeah, that, that gives you an idea of what some travelers had to say about Vidin and towns like it. Now, as we mentioned, Vidin was the usual first port of call in Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire as those steamships are coming down the Danube but they would also pass, sometimes pass Vidin, bypass it, and make their first stop in Svistov, Nikopol, or even Maruse. Other times, steamers would stick entirely to the Romanian side of the Danube. Often this was because of medical quarantine measures in place from 1832 to the mid-1850s, intended to prevent disease spreading between Bulgaria and Wallachia, although honestly this was more political than medical, as Russia, which was heavily influencing Wallachia or controlling it at these times, was really not interested in a porous border here. It wanted a rather hard border, and medical quarantine was a good excuse for that to happen. Now, after the Crimean War, quarantines were really only put into effect on occasion when a disease outbreak occurred, so a little more justified and less political then. Now, what happened when foreigners actually arrived in Ottoman Bulgaria? Before Bulgarian independence, most foreigners who arrived would first meet customs officers, clerks, and the people at the passport bureau. Now, all travelers, except for very high-ranking ones, were required to have a teskere, a combination visa passport which would be checked at all stops throughout their journey, although often it wasn't. Obtaining a teskere took about three days and cost the equivalent of about a day's wage for a peasant. So, obviously not a lot of peasants were visiting the Ottoman Empire as tourists and things, so you can imagine it wasn't a huge amount of money. You know, not nothing, but not too bad. Higher-level officials would usually instead receive a firman, kind of an order from the, the sultan or a high-level official, which, as you can imagine, carried a lot more weight and would open a lot more doors than a teskere. Once in Bulgaria, the preferred mode of transportation for most in the 19th century was the humble horse. There were carts, but these were quite different from Western carriages and were really not ideal for carrying people, though it did happen. Travelers had pretty mixed feelings about local horses, usually looking down on them relative to what they had in the West. They also complained extensively about the discomfort of the Turkish-style saddle which was commonly used in Bulgaria at the time. Basically, compared to what they were used to, it was horrendously painful, and many travelers recommended bringing your own saddle. Now, generally, there were kind of two ways to go about getting a horse when you were traveling. If you really had money, your best option was to buy a horse on arrival and sell it when your journey is complete. A lot like what some people do when they travel, you might show up in a place and buy a car or a motorcycle, you know, do some big journey and then sell it at the end. Occasionally people do that. But... Obviously, just like, you know, people today, most of the time, renting is the better option. Or really the only available option if you don't have the money to buy or don't want to go through the whole rigmarole. Often, horses would be rented at local hans, which are kind of inns, or at post stations. But this often required waiting because a horse might not be available, someone had to go find one. And during wartime, it was extremely difficult to find any spare horses because, well, the army requisitioned them. Now, as you traveled, you had four options for lodging. 
sleeping in the open, obviously not ideal, staying in a Han, remember the a local inn, or more rarely a hotel, those did exist, particularly as we get into the later half of the 19th century, or if you were a prominent visitor, you could expect lodging with a local dignitary, or the last option is you might end up finding lodging with locals, sleeping in a peasant's house, or even in their barn. Now, obviously a peasant's house wasn't such a great option, but it's interesting, there, were, there was kind of a substantial difference between Muslim and Christian villages here. In Christian villages, it was usually pretty straightforward to find some family who was willing to provide room and board for a small fee. However, this was not the case in Muslim villages, where concern over keeping men and who were not members of the family away from the women in the family meant that hosting outsiders within the home was, for the most part, completely out of the question. As a result, Scholler found many, many instances of travelers expressing intense frustration at the inability to find lodgings when they found themselves in such villages, even in extreme cases like snow or rainstorms. For example, Scholler quotes a traveling botanist who complained that he had to, quote, stay for the night in the streets of Turkish villages because the inhabitants will not take in a stranger out of concern for their wives, end quote. What made the situation worse was that Muslim villages were even less likely to have a Han than Christian ones, so you were even less likely to be able to find alternate lodging there. Now, when a traveler had difficulty finding accommodation, the solution was usually to use their escort riders. These were called zaptiers and were used to protect travelers as well as occasionally force a household to provide them with accommodation. Some travelers refused to use them because of the brutal acts they would occasionally commit, and others found them to be trustworthy and professional. And just to note, these armed escorts were frequently Albanians. Just they happened to take the role. As mentioned, because accommodation in Muslim households was far more difficult, it was nearly always a Christian household which was forced to accommodate travelers when the case demanded it. And this was often the source of great frustration. Scholler gives this example, quote, it could also happen that travelers interfered with the gendarmes uh, when they were about to use force. In Tvarditsa near Sliven, Felix Kanitz approached the house of a Chorbagia, but was welcomed rather frostily. The local notable was angered by the fact that the Turks always chose the houses of Bulgarians. Kanitz's gendarme found, that this, found this remark inappropriate and threatened to use his pistol if the Chorbagi remained obstinate. Kanitz then found, finished the scene by dragging the gendarme away and making him find another lodging. They eventually stayed at the local Han outside the village. Still, there were cases when Muslim families were reported to be excellent hosts. This just wasn't that frequent. A Frenchman named Ami Bouet wrote this account of a village near Razgrad. Quote, Since the village possessed no Khan, we went directly to the house which was meant to house travelers and was managed by the Turkish mayor of the hamlet. The gate to the courtyard was open, but no one could be seen. The locals were for the major part busy in the fields, and the entire village was quasi-deserted. For reasons of delicacy, and afraid to catch some women unawares, our Tatar, kind of a nickname for the escort riders, called out with a loud voice. Eventually, we entered the house, which was open as well, and contained two rooms. The main room was furnished with a fireplace whose glow, together with the cover of the divan, indicated that someone had been here until a few hours ago. We set down our luggage under the pen wooden gallery and waited for our hosts to return. After a while, the son of the house owner arrived to greet us. Our horses were placed in a nearby stable, and his mother and sister prepared us an excellent dinner. End quote. 
So it is worth noting that this was kind of a, a house for travelers. Uh, you know, it wasn't a private home. But, you know, uh, I don't want you to get the impression that, you know, oh, Turks are terrible hosts or something are very inhospitable. This is just sort of a thing of, you know, unknown travelers coming into their homes. And obviously this is very different today. This is a time when traveling was much more rare. It wasn't, it was kind of a strange thing for these uh, outsiders from unknown lands just to show up. And it was hard for locals to know really what to expect from them. Travelers also commented on how many towns, towns overall kind of seemed rather forbidding. This was because the style, up until the revival style of architecture, which we'll talk about later, which popped up if maybe you've seen it if you've been to places like Plovdiv or Koprichica, until this style became popular, homes really were very internally focused. From the outside, all you might see is a blank wall and a gate, so for a stranger walking the village, it would seem nearly abandoned and empty. Actually, my wife and I recently experienced this touring the village of Arbanasi outside of Likotonovo. Most of the streets and alleyways are just lined with blank whitewashed walls. They're very beautiful homes, but they're all hidden behind those walls. And there might be people and activity going on, but you can't see any of it. So even if the town is full of people, it feels kind of empty. Now the quality of the Hans, the inns, varied quite a bit. One could usually be found in any town, though not in any village. And in cities and larger towns, at least one Han was generally operated by the government, while all the others, and generally those in smaller towns, were privately owned and operated. Now, travelers often did not have good things to say about them. They were generally not very clean or well-kept, and travelers often had to provide their own bedding. Sometimes meals were available, but not always. In general, a Khan was a rectangular building built around a central courtyard with balconies all around that central courtyard. If you travel around Bulgaria today, you can still find quite a few of them. I'll include a photo of a Khan I recently uh, had dinner in the courtyard in, in Veliko Tornovo. And, you know, if you, I remember many, many years ago staying in Hostel Mostel in Sofia, which, if I recall, used to be a Khan, and it still has that architecture. So if you go around, you can still see them. But that, that you can imagine, kind of central courtyard, balconies all around. Now, starting in the 1860s, the first Western-style hotels began popping up in Bulgarian cities, mostly along the Danube, and Scholler points out that these were often run by foreigners. Obviously, many travelers were delighted to find the comforts and even the cuisine of home so far away. Now, then there was the issue of highway robbers. We've already discussed Hajduks and Kurjali, which plagued Bulgaria at various times, and depending on who you were, could be, you know, heroic freedom fighters or, you know, bloodthirsty brigands. But there were also your run-of-the-mill thieves who just took advantage of the ease of robbing people as they traveled on the roads. Now, it is worth mentioning that foreign opinions of Hajduks did again mirror their politics, either viewing them as freedom fighters or treacherous Turks or outlaw murderers, such as it is. So we got a lot of this, and a lot of travelers to Bulgaria did note that, you know, they needed to pay for these escort riders, that they need to be careful. And there were some cases, as I'll talk about in a second, where people were, you know, attacked, robbed, murdered. And often, of course, not surprisingly, these would be reported in the Western press. Now, a specific case quoted by Scholler is quite interesting. He writes that, quote, The most notorious case is certainly that of the American missionary William M. Merriam from Princeton, New Jersey, born in 1830, resident in Plovdiv since October 1859. He traveled with his wife Susan in a larger company on the road towards Edirne, when they were held up near Uzunjovo by a band of highwaymen on the 3rd of July, 1862. 
William and the other travelers were killed on the spot. His wife managed to bring his corpse back to Plovdiv, but died three weeks later on the 25th of July. The tombstone of William Merriam can today be seen at a wall behind Plovdiv's evangelical church. It bears the line, murdered by robbers near Ugenova. To Lady Blunt, who was present in Plovdiv at the time, this tragic incident illustrates the state of insecurity existing in the country owing to Turkish neglect and maladministration, end quote. Again, foreign newspapers often carried harrowing tales of highway robberies and murders, though often exaggerated. Now, the Ottomans did attempt to address this by building guardhouses along the road, but they weren't very effective. Now again, all of this necessitated many travelers hiring protection. Scholler explains how, quote, Carl F. Peters, traveling in 1864, remarked that the consuls of Western powers or other dignitaries could not afford to travel without several escort riders due to their high status. However, naturalists or other private persons equipped with a Fermin or Buyurt travel documents can do easily without an attendant. Much depends on the individuality and the agility of the escort rider. End quote. Now, of course, travelers weren't the only ones plying the roads of 19th century Bulgaria. More often, it was traders. Now, there were trade caravans, often about 40 to 50 wagons pulled by oxen or buffalo. During these decades, also the first trade fairs began popping up in Bulgaria, where foreigners would bring products from places like Austria to sell. But for the traders looking to get their goods from Vienna to Constantinople, the ferries were definitely a good option, but they still faced the inefficient route of the Danube, cutting upwards and splitting into a vast tributary. Going this way added considerable time and over 300 kilometers to the journey. It also brought traffic away or towards the Russian-dominated Danube Delta and away from Ottoman protection. So, as a result, the idea of a railway came about. This would be Bulgaria's first railway line uh, in the early 1860s. The plan, brought, kind of proposed by a British consortium, was to create a line from Russe to Varna, and Sultan Abdulaziz issued a firman allowing the project contract to be signed on September the 1st, 1861. Work on the project began in the spring of 1864, and I'll cover the developments of that railway in the next episode. And really, that's where I'll finish things for today. I hope you're, you enjoyed this brief departure from our regular episodes. If you did or if you didn't like it, have some comments, feel free to reach out. And I hope you now have a kind of better understanding of this new phenomenon of tourism and travel, as well as how Western Europeans experienced Bulgaria during the 19th century. Again, as we know, Western public opinion is becoming an ever more important political force, and so the way Bulgaria is portrayed in the news media and in the minds of the public is becoming vital. Again, as I finish this book, I'll share more interesting facts, and if you'd like to read it for yourself, it's only, I think, about 25 Bulgarian leva and definitely worth a read, so uh, again, I'll leave a link so you can buy it if you want. So, that's it for today. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com. <laughs>